Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of Ephesians, beginning with verse 19, and let's stand for the reading of the Word. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful to come together this morning in your name and thankful for your word. For your word is indeed a a light unto our feet and, and our guide and to illuminate our path, Lord. And we pray that we would use it just for that, that we would hear what you have to say to us this morning. That you would help me, Lord, as I I bring forth this word, because without you I can do nothing. Nothing that would amount to anything in eternity, but with you all things are possible. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Okay, this is the fifth lesson in our series on the book of Ephesians. And... In five lessons, we are finishing up the first chapter. And as I promised, I'm going to begin with an accolade from John McKay, a Scotsman who later became president of Princeton Theological Seminary, when he described Ephesians as the distilled essence of the Christian faith, truth that sings, doctrine set to music, and which Charles Spurgeon called a complete body of divinity. Verses 3 through 14, if you recall, are just one long sentence in which uh, Paul lays out, kind of in a nutshell, the whole scope of salvation from God's predetermined will before the beginning of creation through our inheritance that we will receive when Jesus comes, bringing to us the fullness of his kingdom. Then beginning in verse 15, Paul begins a prayer for the Ephesian church, praying that they can essentially put into practice what he has outlined in the previous 12 verses. And while these first 12 verses, or first 14 verses, I guess I should say, expound the whole extent of salvation, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is centered more on the here and now. You know, these days so much 
uh, Christian thought, Christian teaching, Christian writing, Christian music, and so forth, is centered on what is to come. And I think that's for two good reasons. One, the Bible talks about it a whole lot. And secondly, what is to come sounds so much better than what is here and now that uh, we would rather concentrate on the better. You know, Paul told the church in Rome that I do not consider the sufferings of this present time to be worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. You know, better times are coming. But, you know, we have to live in the here and now because we're here and it's now. And our hope and our longing for what is to come shouldn't overshadow the present blessings that we have in Jesus. And when thinking about the coming fullness of his kingdom, let's not forget that he is reigning as king in heaven now. And although yeah, he's reigning now, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, we don't yet see all things put under him, but just because we don't see it doesn't mean that it isn't real. And because, you know, he said all things are put under him. And just before writing, you know, that we don't see all these things, he says, you have, have being present tense, put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. And nothing, of course, means nothing. And all means all. So just because we don't see it with our natural eyes, we shouldn't perceive that it isn't real. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So the eternal things which we don't see are just as real as, and in maybe in one sense more real because they are eternal than what we do see. You know, we've been kind of conditioned just to think of Jesus' kingdom in the sense of that's only future. But he is reigning now. And if he is reigning now, he is king. And if he is king now, you can't be a king without a kingdom. Now, where did such thinking come from? Well, I'm going to offend some of you. I'm sorry. <laughs> but i got to say this. A lot of it comes from so-called Christian music. And one of the biggest offenders in this realm over the years has been... <coughs> Southern gospel music. Why? Because it has been so popular. Throughout much of the 20th century, Southern gospel music has dominated, at least in the Bible Belt and in the American South, the theological thinking of a lot of people who are basically biblically illiterate. Now, I'm not saying that all Southern gospel music is bad. It's not. A lot, there's a lot of good Southern gospel music. But Southern gospel music has gone a long way to propagate some really bad theology. And unfortunately, these days, contemporary Christian music is 
is beginning to do the same thing because people are writing songs that will sell. There's money to be made in it. And they're not too awful concerned about the correct theology, you know, putting out songs that will sell. Songs that have not stood the test of times like our old hymns have. So theology is, is secondary. But you know, what plays on the radio, you know, on TV, what people go to concerts to hear, oftentimes will have you know, really erroneous theology. And I'm going to quit on that before I keep talking to get myself in trouble. So let's go on to verse 19. Well, actually, before we do that, I want to back all the way up to verse 15. Uh, you know, I don't really don't like to begin a a lesson on uh, in the middle of a sentence, which I have done this time. I actually don't even like to begin a lesson in the middle of a paragraph. But I really couldn't find a way to divide this prayer up into two sections that were even enough, you know. And so I just decided to go ahead and pick up with verse 19. We actually left off on verse 19 last time. But let's back all the way up and and get what he's saying here in context. Because most of you know I'm really big on context. Beginning at verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. So the essence of Paul's prayer so far is that we who are in Jesus should know what he has done for us. And now he's praying that we may know just who Jesus is and what that power is that he has. And first I want to talk about the fact that Paul wants us to know, to have the knowledge of these things. As James Montgomery Boyce says, Christianity is a religion of knowledge. It's for the head as well as the heart. In verse 9, Paul said, Having made known, having made, let me try this again, having made known to us the mystery of his will. And in verse 17, he prays that we may receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of him. And he goes on in verse 18, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of his inheritance in the saints. You know, unlike other religions, Jesus never asked us to believe anything just on blind faith. Blind faith asked that we believe something without any evidence. And you know, God took many hundreds of years laying the groundwork for the coming of Jesus so that when he did come, his credentials would be impeccable. 
then even when he came, he didn't ask that we just believe him for the scripture's sake, but also to consider the signs and the miracles that he performed as proof that he was who he said he was. So we have reason. Not just knowledge, we also have reason to believe. But, as Boyce goes on to say, Christianity is not just head knowledge. It's not a religion of ideas only or merely a philosophy. As important as sound doctrine is and sound theological knowledge, it is given that we might know God better and thus live in his power and be victorious over sin in this life. Christianity is knowledge, yes, but it's also the power, the power of God from beginning to end. It's the power of God to make the dead come alive and live victorious in this life as well as the life to come. Paul is praying that we may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And in these five verses that we're looking at today, Paul expands expounds on the power of God as displayed in three ways. First, by the resurrection power of Jesus and the placing of all things under the authority of Jesus and the benefit of these things to the church. Verse 20. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. So when Paul is thinking about the greatness of the display of, of the power of God he's thinking first of the resurrection. Someone said God demonstrated his love for us on the cross where Jesus died. He demonstrated his power to us in Jesus' resurrection. Now many times during Jesus' earthly ministry he predicted his death and resurrection. Matthew 16, 21 he said, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. But to his disciples, this seemed unlikely, impossible even, so that it just wouldn't sink in. So much so that when he was, even after he was crucified, even though he predicted this after he was crucified, it still didn't sink in. They even had witnessed the resurrection power that he had. The when he raised to life the dead son of the widow of Nain when he raised Lazarus who had actually already began to decompose raised him from the grave but you know, even though they had seen these things they still didn't think didn't consider that even after they saw him some of them refused to believe or until they saw him they refused to believe so what kind of power could accomplish a miracle like this? Certainly no power on earth could. Men and women have been dying ever since Adam and Eve in the garden. 
and with the exception of uh, a couple, you know, Enoch and Elijah, who went straight to heaven, didn't pass go or collect $200, just went straight to heaven, everybody else has died. And even though the couple or the few who have been raised from the dead still died again. But certainly, nobody ever raised from the dead on their own power. This just could not happen. It was unthinkable to them. Or as the great Vincini said, inconceivable. So, but you know, when we look to heaven and consider the vastness the billions of stars and all the galaxies and all that the Lord has created. We look at the earth, you know, the beauty of, of God's creation from tiny molecules and cells to just the vastness and the complexity of life itself and, and the great creation that He has done. Still in all of this, there is nothing greater than the power, the ability to give life and to bring life from the dead. But you know what? Because He lives, we can live too. Because He rose from the dead, we can rise from the dead as well. The fact that He lives means that we will live too. And this process has already begun in us. Because as Paul wrote to the church at Colossians, Colossae, we who were dead in trespasses and sins, he has made alive together with him. We were spiritually dead. And when you're dead, you're dead. And we have about as much power, or exactly as much power, to bring ourselves to life spiritually as we do to bring ourselves to life physically. And that is completely none. But he who overcame, who overcame death has begun the process in us already in bringing us to life in the Spirit. And so we know that he can bring us to life in the body with this spiritual rebirth comes the promise, the assurance that just as Jesus bodily rose from the grave, so can we too. But still, death is very much with us. The Bible calls it the last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, For he must reign till he put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. But these verses tell us that there's more to the power of Jesus' resurrection than just our own resurrection. We have that power available to us here and now. And that power is demonstrated in the power we have to live victorious lives. Not that we will ever be free from sin and the effects of sin while we're in this mortal bodies. But we have a power now, if we have been born again, if we are spiritually alive, we have a power that was never ours before we accepted Christ our Lord. We still have to confront the enemies of the flesh. We still have to confront the onslaughts that we face daily 
you know, and Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Ephesians says that in this life we're faced with three great adversaries. The world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, the world, the world system is, is opposed to God. You know, Jesus told us that you know, in no uncertain terms. And if the world hated him, the world will hate us too. The world will try to do everything it possibly can to get us over to their their way of thinking, to see life as as they see it. And I think it gets harder all the time. You know, we are bombarded constantly by media sources, you know, wanting to draw us into the world's way of thinking, you know, from billboards to these little things we hold in our hand all the time, you know. Uh, called cell phones we, we get bo- bombarded constantly with the world's way of thinking which is of course diabolically aclo- opposed to God's way of thinking they want us to think like they do that this world is all there is but you know the Bible tells us that all that is in the world is the lust of the eye the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. How are we to overcome such an enemy? By the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that enables us to renew our minds, as Paul said in Romans 12. The second great adversary is the flesh. When the Bible speaks of the flesh, it's talking about our sinful nature that we are born with. And the flesh is really a daunting enemy it's kind of like saying we are our own worst enemies. Or like that great philosopher, Pogo Possum, said, we have met the enemy and he is us. You know, we so often give credit to the devil for the things that, that we do. Back in the 70s, I believe it was, the comedian Flip Wilson popularized the saying, the devil made me do it. But you know, the devil can't make anybody do anything. He knows us. He knows our weak points. He knows where to tempt us. And he certainly uses the world system to do just that. But, you know, as James said, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings death the devil didn't make Adam and Eve take the forbidden fruit any more than he can make you or me partake of our own favorite brand of forbidden fruit but he certainly will not hesitate to put it before us and of course the devil is our enemy He is always on the lookout for something to tempt us with, and he knows exactly what. You know, he tempted Jesus in the wilderness by suggesting he turn the rocks into bread because he knew that Jesus was hungry. He had just fasted for 40 days. Now, I have never fasted for 40 days. I can't imagine how hungry you would be after fasting 40 days. Fasting for 40 hours 
is almost more than I can stand, you know. So I, I see this temptation of Jesus as being real. If it wasn't a real temptation, it wouldn't be a temptation. But he couldn't make Jesus turn the rocks into bread. And he told Jesus, you know, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. They'll be yours. In other words, you know, all you have to do is worship me and you can bypass this thing of going to the cross. And I'm sure Jesus didn't relish the idea of going to the cross. He was willing to do it, or as we're told, endure the shame of it because he loved us so very much. This had to be a real temptation. The devil was trying to hit him where he was the weakest. Just like he will tempt you where you are the weakest. There are some things that the devil never tempts me with. Because I don't have any interest in those areas. But he knows where I'm weakest and that's where he'll hit me. He knows where you're the weakest and that's where you you will be hit. But... You know, Peter said, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But you know, uh, Paul later in this book of Ephesians tells us to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against his wiles. And how are we to withstand these onslaughts? The world the flesh and the devil God made provision for that when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places and put everything under his feet far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also that which is to come you know Jesus God didn't use all his strength in resurrecting Jesus from the dead. God's strength is inexhaustible. He's ruling and reigning now over all the principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not just above them, but far above them. And all of these principalities, dominions, powers, every name that includes any adversary that we have. In verse 22 he says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The third step in Christ's exaltation through God's power is in these last two verses. God placed all things under his feet And all things means all things. That means that everything, everywhere, and every being is subject to him and to his power. The powers that assail us are subject to him, and we are his. These verses are saying that God gave Jesus his power and his authority to the church for the benefit of this church. And you know, and I suspect that very few of us, if any of us, 
fully understand, fully comprehend just what an exalted position in the Lord that we hold. You know, we may not feel exalted. A lot of times we don't look exalted. And a lot of times we don't act exalted. In fact, most of us, most of the time, can identify better with Paul when he said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? But it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is both delivering us and has delivered us by his resurrection power. As the 19th century Bible scholar Hanley Mole said, Yes, this is here given as the final glory of the infinitely exalted Christ. Angels and archangels are subject to him, but believing men are joined to him with a union such as that he and they, by the same messenger of his, are called elsewhere one with Christ. Angels are subject to him, but we are joined to him. And what does Paul mean when he says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all? Well, there's a couple ways of looking at this, and commentators have differing opinion on who is filling whom and with what, but one possibility is to say that uh, all things are in Christ, and Christ is the fullness of God, and God is uh, the fullness of all things. But John Stott, in his commentary discussing these possibilities, says that although this is an attractive possibility, it really isn't possible isn't possible it isn't scriptural the Bible says that in Jesus the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily but it never says that Jesus is the fullness of God that would be to say that the Father is is incorporated in the Son and that's just not accurate but the second view which sounds a little off at first is to say that the church completes Christ now that is not to say that Christ is lacking in anything for he is God and certainly complete in himself but it is saying that the church is the completion of his work let's remember that the whole purpose of God in creation was to make for himself a people who would love him and who would worship him And this is being accomplished today in his church. And his church is his body in whom his fullness dwells. It speaks of just how united we are to him. And he is the one who is doing the filling and who fills our lives and in whom our lives are hidden and secure. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful to you that you loved us enough to send your only begotten Son that whoever believes in you should not perish but have eternal life. And we thank you, Lord, not only for this promise, 
a promise of life eternal, a life with you, but also that we have life now, that our spirits are alive, that we can come before you, our Lord and our God, in worship, in prayer, in thanksgiving, knowing that you are with us, knowing that you will see us through to the end, that you will accomplish in us that work which you have begun. And Father, I pray right now that anyone, the sound of my voice, whether right now or through the podcast or wherever, Lord, anyone who doesn't know you, that you would call them to you, Lord. Let them know your resurrection power, that they too can have life, have it more abundantly, and have it eternally. In Jesus' name. Amen.